Blog Talk Radio. My life is letting me down the road that's so uncertain. Now I am left alone and I am broken. Trying to find my way, trying to find the faith that's gone. This time. That you are holding all the answers But I'm tired of losing hope and taking chances On a road that never seem To be the ones that bring me home Give me a revelation Show me what to do July 2016. You can find us at blogtalkradio.com forward slash the kingdom of God or nothing. You can also find this radio program at I have well on iTunes uh, by searching in the podcasts 
for the kingdom of God or nothing. And you can find the archives of this radio program and a lot more to read at the kingdom of God or nothing.com. I'm also on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash L-A-Z-U-R-U-S 1977. Uh, we're going to be continuing on where we left off yesterday, uh, reading about uh, tithing, actually, and 95 other changes in the LDS church. Uh, from Well, from the time of the Restoration, uh, there's been a lot of changes, which most people, if they don't know about the history of the church, the actual history, not the spoon-fed history that you get in the uh, lesson manual. See, they, they're like half theory Mormon that pick and choose what they want to teach you. And then they tell you that the prophet can never lead you astray, which is false doctrine, because they then they say that Brigham Young and other prophets uh, did lead the church astray. But they're infallible, but Brigham Young wasn't. And Joseph Smith wasn't either. Yeah, so, uh, and then they teach you that the modern oracles of God are more important than the old oracles of God when they don't even know what the mean, or, uh, meaning of oracles is. Oracle, an oracle, is the words of God delivering them. And then they say, we're the oracles of God. And I'm sorry, <laughs> you're not the words of God. Uh, it may be true that God did speak you into existence, uh, existence, Mr. Prophet, but <laughs> I don't know how that all works. I wonder if that's how it works. Like, because I know that God, uh, like, calls or He creates. Um, oh, hold on here. He creates people, right, out of the intelligence. I wonder if He just speak. I didn't see the process. What if He speaks us into existence? Um, that's what the Africans believe that God spoke the word into existence. Actually, they, he sang the word into existence. And I think you've heard that a little bit uh, coming out of Jewish Midrash and other places, but I don't know. I haven't really looked into it that much. But, but the oracles of God are are more important. That the, or if God were to give his oracles to men on the earth, they would be more important for you to listen to them if they were given today, but they haven't been given to the church since the 1880s and 1890. Uh, and I'm not talking about the manifesto. I'm talking about where John Taylor and Wilfred Woodruff were told not to give up polygamy or plural celestial marriage or the new and everlasting covenant of marriage or the United Order or any of that. Um, but then they just decided that they were going to do it anyway, which completely goes against what Jesus told them to do when Jesus saw them face to face. And ever since that point, you you don't have the oracles of God in the church. And I'm sorry, the manifesto reads, to whom it may concern. It's not an oracle of God. That's not how God speaks. Um, Unless he was going to write, to whom it may concern, you did not follow what I told you to do. So have fun. Enjoy your apostasy. Looks at him. Yeah, he, he, he speaks, uh, thus saith the Lord usually, not to whom it may concern. Anyway, but he does speak to man on the earth. 
he does give the saith the Lord revelations to men on the earth. He's given me must are me thus saith the Lord revelations, art of the saith the Lord revelations, Frederick, uh, or Samuel Warren Schaefer, thus saith the Lord revelations, Joshua has received thus saith the Lord revelations, Jared has received thus saith the Lord revelations, and my wife has received thus saith the Lord well a little different with her. She actually received the thus saith the mother <laughs> uh revelation about what, a month two ago? Two months ago? Kids like tell people. <laughs> but God is to man on the earth again. Uh in the scriptures it said that he would hide his face from us for a little season and he did because of our disobedience. He wants us to return to him. Part of the restoration, which was started but not completed, is getting back to things that need to be restored, like the feasts and the festivals, which we are going to live in the millennium. But And it talks about that in the scriptures, but... For some reason, the church doesn't think that we have to live these things. And you even see evidence of the, of the feasts and the festivals in the Book of Mormon. Of course, most people don't understand that during Book of Mormon times, they lived the law of Moses up until a certain point. But the feasts and the festivals were never meant to be uh, done away with. So there's other uh, sacrifices and other, other things, ordinances that... Uh, we're not done away with, right? Well, the law of Moses, which people say, okay, well, that's been done away with, but there were sacrifices and ordinances that are not restored in the church right now that were before the law of Moses, and those have not been done away with, nor have they been fulfilled. So anyway, continuing on, uh, we're just going to uh, read a bit until I don't want to read anymore. I actually... Over the last two days, I've gotten eight hours of sleep. Uh, my stomach chart decided to break down again today. I had to get somebody to come pull start me, which is all kinds of fun because it would not jump. Uh, I was jumping one stomach chart with the other, just wasn't happening. For two hours, I sat there trying to get it to jump uh, while I was waiting for the guy to come pull start me. Finally got it started. Uh, Delivered my deliveries, took it to the mechanic, and it was a, a big fat cable between the starter and the battery, I guess. I'm not sure exactly, but, I mean, they took it out, and because um, I was, I was kind of interested to see what was going on. So I kind of was there, even though I should have totally gone to bed, but I was sitting there and watching the mechanic and talking to him, and he pulled it out, and he says, well, this is the problem, and you know, like look at this big, fat, huge cable, and it doesn't look like there's any problem with it at all. Like nothing wrong with it, but I don't know what happened. If corrosion got in there or what, but it it was uh, it needed to be replaced. He replaced it, started just like like his dream. It was nice, so. <laughs> I didn't kill my batteries. The batteries are still good. Anyway, 
Um, so I've been sleeping since uh, I got home, uh, and I just woke up to do the radio program, and then I found out one of my friends went to jail. I'm not even sure why. She's a really sweet girl, but she made some mistake or something, and she got to go to jail. I asked her if she made any friends in jail, and she says no, and I said, why not? <laughs> um, you know, I, I, she says, well, it's not really the the place to make friends. Well, oh, wait, hold on. I'm going to say something to her. You know, you know, Jesus went to jail. <laughs> um, and so did Paul, and so did Daniel, and so did, uh, I don't know, a bunch of the prophets and the, and the apostles. So, Joseph Smith went to jail. Well, I got to say that to her. Joseph Smith went Jail. <laughs> I'm, I'm messaging her on Facebook. <laughs> oh, hold on here. I'm actually doing my radio show in a little bit different way. But, but hold on. We are talking about you. <laughs> Not using. Your name, of course. <laughs> She's all, I thought you had to do your show. <laughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> she says, what? I do not approve. <laughs> uh, anyway, so, um, anyway, um, so my wife woke me up. I needed 11, and she says, are you going to do your show? And I was like, oh, I don't want to. But So I'm still laying in bed. I have my headset on my phone, my pillow under my head, and my laptop on my stomach. This is how I'm reading tonight. And this is the way I'm going to stay until I am done with the program because I am still tired. But I thought, you know what? I can't just give up doing the show just because I only got four hours of sleep. That's what caffeine is for. You know, and I'll be fine driving. I I know when I'm exhausted, um, and I'm not exactly exhausted, but my body does not feel very good. You know, like when you don't get very much sleep, and then you've got that kind of uh, feeling. That's kind of how I feel right now. But like I said, I, I took a shower, and uh, you know, earlier and got cleaned up, and I'm just gonna lay here. And we're going to read all about the changes in the church, starting with tithing. Um, so we're reading the book 95 Thesis, which you can find to read for free online at thekingdomofgodornothing.com. Click on Ogden Kraut and scroll right down to 95 Thesis. And we are on page 72, which is topic Fifty-one. So we're a little bit over halfway through it. I think it's interesting though, because uh, Hard didn't put down 90, 95 major topics that have been changed in the church. But then he would be like, uh, topic fifty-one A, topic fifty-one B, topic fifty-one C. So it's actually way more than ninety-five topics. But you got to fit it in the 95 thesis because the you know the the original 95 thesis was 95 points of doctrine that had been changed or ignored by the Catholic Church, written by Martin Luther 
and pounded on the chapel doors at the Wittenberg Chapel in Germany. So that's uh, kind of where that comes from. But let's just uh, let's dedicate the program and get into the uh, the doctrine and the reading. So, uh, by the way, he wrote this book back in the seventies. Um, mid-70s, I think. Uh, So, you know, we have a modern age which goes from, like, Wilford Woodruff to uh, on, mostly. Um, But there's, like, a slow creeping change in the church. So, but you you would understand that if if you actually study the the history by yourself, not through the lens of the church is true and follow the prophet, uh, the church is not true. It's the gospel that's true. The church is changing, ever-changing. The gospel does not change. Okay, so um, prophets can lead you astray. Um, and when the church today says that prophets can lead you astray, but then they, like, do mental somersaults in their brain and say, well, President Young was different. He was the president of the church. He was the prophet, but he led the people astray concerning whatever they want to say, because there's lots of things that they disagree with him on, because they've hijacked the church. These businessmen, uh, bankers, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, or business, Babylonian business suits, uh, you know, they've hijacked the church. And I I believe that there are wolves and there are sheep among the leaders of the church. Uh, for instance, I like Dallin H. Oaks talks, but because he's never felt the burning in the bosom, he wants you to believe that that's perfectly okay, and it's not. Okay, the burning in the bosom is the Holy Spirit coming down on you like fire. If you have not had that, I feel sorry for you. It testifies of truth. When I speak truth, especially deep doctrine, like Jehovah and Jesus being different, or uh, the, um, what do you call it, the, um, it's right on the edge of my mind, uh, like, you know, you're like, what is that word, the, of the gods, the, the progression of the gods, when I've taught that before, like the spirit burns within me. When I'm at church and we're talking about whatever the thing is that we're talking about in Sunday school or Elmer's Quorum, I, when I speak and I'm teaching them truth, I feel the spirit burning within me. Just like the apostles or the disciples on the road to Emmaus said uh, when Jesus was talking to them, and then they realized it was him after his resurrection. They didn't realize it was him. Uh, right at the last second, Jesus kind of was like, he took the blinders off their eyes, and he's like, hey, guys. <laughs> and then he kind of disappears. And the other one said, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us? As if to say, we should have known better. Jesus was speaking to us. We didn't even realize it was him walking with us. And then... You know, like the the Holy Spirit, like the burning in the bosom was going on, you know, as he was expounding scripture, and we should know better, right? 
And that brings a whole new light to that scriptures in Hebrew chapter 13, verse 2, where it says, Be not forgetful to entertain angels, for thereby some have entertained. I'm sorry. <laughs> Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Because Jesus was walking on the dusty roads of uh, Judea with his disciples speaking to them, expounding the scriptures to them. They did not know who he was. He was a stranger to them. And then he decided to allow them to see that it was really him. And as their eyes popped out of their head and their jaw dropped in astonishment, he disappeared. And the one looked at the other and said, did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us? Or as if to say, we should have known better, you know, no idea who you're speaking to. No idea who those homeless people are on the street. No clue. You have no idea who the servants of God are that are walking among you. Take, for instance, the Jews thought that Jesus was a heretic. That he did the things that he did by the power of Beelzebub. And they said that, right? And he was God walking as a man on the earth. And they did not know. He's not the father. Well, he became the father through the law of adoption. And he knew he would. Uh, because of the atonement, because all they who accept him become his children. But guess what? He has a father over him who is our father as well. And the grandfather over him who is our grandfather as well. You know, when he, he went to uh, Mary or Miriam, uh, Mary Magdalene, after uh, he came back uh, and was resurrected and he came back, First person he goes to is Mary Magdalene, his wife, who was an apostle, his apostle, one of his eyewitnesses. She saw him in the flesh. And and she said to him, and this is the, the true translation. It, well it was it was or that the false translation is touch me not like like she's gonna run to him and you know, and not embrace him, but touch him. And that's that's the false. That's the King James Version, right? It's hold me not. She saw him, and she she recognized him, and she ran to him, and she said, hold me not, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go unto my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. So he went to the Father at that point, right? And I wonder if there was a distinction because Jehovah, who is not Jesus Christ, was a redeemer also on an older earth. Michael, who is not, of course, not Jesus Christ, but he was a redeemer on an older earth as well. This is the progression of the gods each one above another. It goes Jehovah to Michael to Jesus to myself to Joseph Smith to whoever's next after that. We just, you know, this is a progression, right? Anyway, I don't know why I'm getting on this topic. It's kind of 
we should just get into the reading. Let's um, let's see here. See if uh, Ellen has anything to say before we get into the reading. I don't know if I'm going to be reading for the whole two hours tonight because I think I'm just much tired. But how you doing, Ellen? Doing okay. I just got on the line. I've been running around doing everything and helping everybody and watching all of the people who want tithes and offerings. And <laughs> I, I'm in. I'm in a really learning experience with the world and all of the people who just don't get it. <laughs> oh, oh well. yeah, I know. It, you got to be patient when you're playing with preschoolers. <laughs> Gee. Yeah, uh, and I'm well, much, trying to much older. I must, be old, I must be in first grade, so I'm... Who <laughs> knows? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sometimes you get a little irritated when you're dealing with, um, you know, preschoolers, but you got to remember that for whatever reason, they've been stuck in the ABC portion, and that's just where they're at, you know, and hopefully you can teach them. It's kind of like when, like, my daughter, when she was, like, three or four, and she's seven now, used to try to teach me things that, like, she didn't even understand that she thought she knew <laughs> she was going to teach me, you know, and that was when sometimes that's how I feel like it is to try to teach people the gospel, you know, it's like, Oh, can't you read this? Or like, is it really that hard? But, but you know what? God is kind and long suffering. And I think he's a good example for us. So of course, sometimes he has to spank our butts too. So, but that's his right, not ours. It's kind of like, you know, my, my son thinks that um, if my daughter's in trouble that he should punish her somehow. And it's like you have no right to yell at her or anything else. It ain't your place. That's my place. If I'm going to tell her something and, and correct her, that's mom and dad's job, not your job, you know. So we give that to the father, and we allow him to, to judge or whatever. So True. So, anyway, um, did you find any more information out about that uh, Sam Pete County uh, uh, um, tour? I haven't uh, even, even paid any time for it. It was a busy day, so I didn't even get to that today. But <laughs> what did you find out about that? Well, I can, uh, I can send you, yeah, it's uh, Janice Coley down there is a friend of mine, and she's the one that sent me that, so I can always forward that or her number to you so you can connect with her. That'd but, be great, uh, yeah, that'd be great. I'd, I'd like that. Now, San Pete County, is that like Mantine Ephraim? Is that San Pete? Yeah. Yep, she lives in Ephraim, so Noah's Ark was supposedly okay. built <clears throat> just uh, 10, 15 miles to the west of Ephraim. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. I know that the wood that they traced it, because uh, Noah's Ark's up on Mount Ararat in Turkey, but uh, didn't they trace the DNA? Yeah, that, the wood that's where it landed, but of course... 
there, but uh, they did some tests. I had a, uh, the guy died now, but he lived up in San Pete, and he and my friend uh, Dwayne Erickson, who lives in in um, Evanston, has a lot of evidence of all of this. But he, um, these guys took a test on the stone, the DNA of the stone of a stone up here in the mountains in San Pete and compared it to the stone the stones that were dropped oh, off of the ark over there that yeah they had like 16 or 32 I don't know how many but they had holes in them and there the whole story of the ark is written on those stones where they dropped them off as the water uh, went down and anyway, they, they tested it, and, and uh, they said it would have had, there's no way it could not, that stone uh, could not be the same as the stone in the quarries here in San Pete. So, wow, that's fascinating. They, it is. It's pretty interesting. And so, yeah, I do believe that uh, Noah's village was on the top of the mountain. Seth's temple was up there. Adam's temple's down there. They have a woman's temple. Um, oh, yeah. But there's there's graves and uh, all kinds of skeletons and stuff that BYU has taken away from behind Manti Temple where Adam's temple was. <clears throat> anyway, and that was, you know, probably just one of them after he left the Garden of Eden. But apparently they lived in that uh, valley down there, and that was an educational um, area for the whole world at one time. And there's even stories of the Golden Fleece from Greece and how they uh, the Greeks came over here to get the gold. There was a Golden Fleece, and that story comes from their wanderings over here to the mountains. Yeah, you know it's interesting the uh, the copper that came out of uh, or that was used in the Bronze Age, they've traced the DNA back to the Michigan copper mines. That's where Correct. the majority of that copper came from. You know, yep, and so but right. this is like the hidden history of America. They don't want you to know about that. You know, and when they think, and there's there's like. Egyptian hieroglyphs and uh, artifacts in um, Memphis, uh, Tennessee, and Cairo, Cairo, Illinois, you know, and in that area. But they don't want you to know about that either because the only people who were here were the Indians and they were walking around nomadic and whatever that they were doing, you know. And there's no way that there was Egyptians or, you know, uh, civilized people in this country before. Um, before Columbus, you know, even it's like, wow. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So there's a lot of stories. I've read a lot and seen a lot and not read a lot. And, you know, there's, <laughs> there's gold and uh, there's tunnels underneath uh, the Uinta Mountains there where Brigham Young got the gold from the Rhodes Mine and all that kind of stuff as well. Oh, that's interesting. I, I um, when I was living out in the Uinta Basin, uh, working in the oil fields, um, one of the big quotes that they uh, talk about out there, Brigham Young said that 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 area out there was good for nothing but Indians and outlaws. 
and we just kind of laughing at it because there's so much oil out there, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. There's uh, there's lots of treasures out there. Well, the the uh, yeah the Indian. I mean, look at the Mexicans for hundred years. The Mexicans had the Mexican trails up here into Utah looking for the gold of Montezuma that Montezuma took away after Montezuma killed all of the Indians down there and the Aztecs and the people of Mexico are proven related and so the people, the the natives from Utah the Ute Indians a couple of college professors in California have proved that the DNA down there in Mexico comes from Utah. Oh wow! From those Indians. Yeah, I've heard about some other gold mines out there that people have uh, have found out in the Yuna Basin, and, and like they go back to where it was, and it's just gone, and nobody knows where they're at. But they're like, you know, legends of these gold mines and stuff out there, and it's kind of interesting. Um, when I was working out there, you've got the uh, the, uh, I can't remember what it's called, the, oh, what's that uh, Indian legend about the uh, changing, or the, like, the, what are they called? Skinwalker Ranch. You ever heard of that before? Oh, yeah, yeah. The, that's uh, quite a crazy place. Oh, I know, but there's things out there. Like, I watched, um, uh, 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 I don't know what it was. I was driving my <laughs> excuse me. I was driving my semi truck. Uh, uh, well, I I drove in the oil fields, and you have like mini barrel tank on the back of the semi, uh, not a semi truck, but like a straight truck with a semi truck front and whatever. Uh, you go out and get the oil because um, no regular semi trucks can get back there because it's just the canyons and the dirt roads and stuff. It's crazy. It's beautiful. Anyway, I'm driving along one day, and I've got all my lights on because I was uh, an emergency night management, uh, and what my my job was was to go out and take care of the overflow, uh, not overflowing, but the high-pressure wells and the fracks and all that uh, to make sure nothing overflowed and whatever. And so I'm driving along about 10, 15 miles an hour because, like, the roads are so rough, that's all you can do. Um, hold on. Right. Right. My, my friends like oh. yeah I'm sorry I'm just, I got distracted anyway so I'm driving along and I've got all my lights on about 3 o'clock in the morning and I look over and there's this this thing that looks kind of like a bear but no hair on it running alongside of the truck and it scared the crap out of me and I, I about jumped into the other seat you know and it, it ran off into the darkness and I don't know what it was because I I've never seen anything that looked like that, but I hear about these the skinwalkers that are out there, you know. And there was some other strange things that happened out there too. Like uh, one of the other guys was uh, pulling oil off of a well, and uh, he watched uh, some Indians come over and walk um, through the site dressed in like old Indian outfits, and they looked like they were solid people, you know, and he's like, kind of like, what in the world is this, you know? 
anyway, they're walking along and then they just disappear. You know, they kind of just fade off and they're gone. Like not like disappear because they walk too far away, but like they just disappear. <laughs> you know, and then yeah. there were some other things that happened too out there. Um, I uh, I would go up into this area and this is on the uh, uh, what is it called? It's a reservation out there. Um, Moapa? No, it wasn't Moapa. Uh, O'Ray. O'Ray Indian Reservation. And uh, so, you know, you get up into the chair and it's kind of like this weird feeling in the area and you'd hear like drum, drums pounding, like a warm tribe thing going on or something. And you'd go over the hill where you thought the drums were and there would be nobody there. And that happened all the time out there. Anyway, so um, there was uh, one particular well they ate off, and they had taken the the thing off the side of the tank where you could actually get in there and clean it out. And so I'm kind of cleaning it out, and I'm standing out there in the middle of the night, and I'm hearing more drums, which is normal, and I'm just kind of like enjoying just being out there in the wilderness, you know, doing my job and everything. And so um, I was listening, and I'd never heard them coming from two different directions at the same time. This particular night, I heard them to the southeast of me and to the north of me. And so I'm standing out there in the dark just listening, and I look down, completely weird. There's this black feather uh, being pushed by the wind. It, It, like, comes right up to the side of my foot. The second I reach down to pick it up, the drum stopped. And I never heard him again. And I told my aunt that, and she said that she uh, was in a ward one time uh, where the scouts were doing stuff with the Indians and some, I don't know, like wigwam or something. Anyway, um, when they came out, there was black feathers all over the place, like all over the place. And the the elders of the Indians, they said that it was – the spirits of the ancestors have accepted them. And I always wondered, I wonder if that was, you know, the same kind of thing for me. Like when I reached down and I picked that feather up and I never heard those Indian drums again, I wonder if that was that. But I don't know. There's like tons of strange stories out there and you hear legends about things and all kinds of stuff. But it's all interesting. I don't know if you can prove any of it. And it's, you know, maybe it's just coincidence, but it's, something to, to learn about, you know? Yeah, it's tough, it's tough to prove it. Most people just think you're crazy. It's like seeing a UFO or something, you know? <laughs> but. Yeah. Never seen one of those. And, you know, I've been driving a semi truck out there uh, driving nights for years. Never saw a UFO. I saw some pretty <laughs> strange. Never saw a UFO. Um, that's all interesting stuff. I, yeah, those kinds of things me. are. What's that? Oh, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying that uh, a lot of the things won't be so strange once we get through this period that we're in. We're just living in the great deception. So after how things were like that will just be natural, but. Um, Seen more of the good things eventually. You've seen a lot of bad ones. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, 
hard to say though. But yeah, there's there's native there's lots of stories about the Native Americans. There's a ton of them and uh, people who are, are record keepers and have been brought treasures by many people that have seen things like you saw with the Indians, the Native Americans riding on horses and. I mean, there's some really great stories, but when it comes right down to it, uh, they're just acknowledging the spirits that we are, and um, we happen to maybe see them, but uh, the important part is that we come together and create the community, you know, the consecrated communities, because uh, those other things we'll figure out later. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's kind of like if you're going to be in Zion people, you must keep, you know, the higher laws, the Zion laws. You know, and we're about the redemption of Zion, and that's why God restored the church to the earth so that Zion could be redeemed, you know. But in order to do that, we've got to keep the higher laws. United Order is one of the things, you know. It's having all things in common, having no poor, uh, no poor among you, taking care of each other. I mean, that's a big deal, and we got to do it if we want, you know, Zion to be redeemed. And if we want to be obedient to God, you know, we have to do those things. So it's just a matter of getting people to actually learn about them and then actually start doing them, you know, that seems to be the issue. No, Emma? Okay. Okay. All right. Anyway, that was uh, came in the room. I I'm uh, I had a a, a truck I broke it broke down today, and um, uh, I had to take it to the shop, and it, it turned out to be a wire between uh, between the starter and the battery, or some wire, and I pulled it off the starter. That was bad. It didn't look bad, but apparently it was bad. Anyway, so I only got four hours of sleep today. So uh, when I came home, got home about 8.30, and I slept all the way up until the show started, and I'm still laying in bed with the laptop on my stomach and my headset on just trying to relax while I'm doing the show. So I usually sit in the chair and do it from there, but not tonight. Anyway, um. I guess we'll get into the reading. I'll just dedicate the program. Like I said, we're on page 72 of 95 Thesis, topic 51, Tithing, and I'll uh, I'll dedicate the program and we'll get straight into the reading. And if you could just mute your phone. Uh, by the way, anybody who uh, anybody else who wants to call in, the guest call number is 516-387-1641. That's 516-387-1641. Sixteen forty-one. So, excuse me. Okay. Our Father in heaven, we come to thee in the name of thy Son Jesus Christ. We ask thee, Father, for thy blessings to be upon us tonight in thy Spirit as we go over these uh, these things, these principles of the gospel that you have given unto us, which does not change. We ask thee, Father, to help us to understand and to receive more light and knowledge that we might be tools in thine hand to bring about the redemption of Zion, that thy kingdom would be upon the earth as it is in heaven. 
we look forward to the day, the day of thy return and to the day of the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank thee, Father, for all the holy prophets that have gone on before, and we say these things in the name of our Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, even Jesus the Christ. Amen. Tithing. <clears throat> Wherefore Abraham paid unto him tithes of all he had, of all the riches which he possessed, which God had given him more than that which he had need. Genesis chapter 14, verse 39 of the inspired translation. That's interesting. You know, uh, so he paid the tithing of more than, uh, of more that, than which he had need, right? But God gave him everything that he had, but that's what he paid on. Um, anyway, in Malachi chapter three, verses eight and nine, it says, will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me, but ye say, wherein have I? Ro- are we robbed thee in tithes and offerings? Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have ro- robbed me, even this whole nation. So, and this is actually God rebuking the priests. Uh, you know, not just everybody, but He was actually re- uh, rebuking the the leaders of the church at the time. Um, in another place, in Doctrine and Covenants section 11, or no, 119, verse 2, for the, build, for the building of mine house and for the laying of the foundation of Zion and for the priesthood and for the debts of the presidency of my church, and this shall be the beginning of the tithing of my people. <clears throat> Doctrine and Covenants section 51, verses 7, 8, and 10. And by the way, Alan, if you have any comments, you can go ahead and just interrupt me at any time. And let that which belongs to this people be appointed unto this people, and the money which is left unto this people, let there be an agent appointed unto this people to take the money to provide food and raiment, that's clothing, according to the wants of this people. And let that which belongeth to this people not be taken and given to that of another church. So the extra is supposed to go to the bishop's storehouse uh, for the, the supply of, of food and clothing for the saints. Uh, that's not practiced in the church today. But what is practiced in the church today is they take the tithing, and, oh, let's see here, is Newsweek magazine, and it's an article entitled Latter-day Prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S, and it was given January 22, 1962. This is on page 67 of that article. The biggest commercial enterprise in the West, accepting only the massive Bank of America in California, is a strictly non-commercial organization called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known as the Mormons. Income pours in from the church's vast collections of businesses and real estate investments ranging from the Hotel Utah on Salt Lake on Salt Lake City's Temple Square to the 260,000-acre Florida cattle ranch, which is the largest cattle ranch in all of North America, as far as that's what I've heard. I might be wrong. Anyway, all told, the cash flow reaches an estimated $1 million a day, and that was in 1962. Today, they actually collect about $6 billion a year from the tithes and offerings, um, they they use six hundred thousand dollars a year, which is a tenth of the tithes 
for humanitarian efforts. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that all of that money, that $6 billion a year, goes into a lockbox at Chase Manhattan Bank, and they're not allowed to touch it for two years. But then they invested into these businesses in Babylon, which Joseph said, it is the mind and will of the Lord not to lay up another dollar to build up Babylon and her kingdom. So, or, you know, or, or Gentile cities. He said that too. So why are they doing this? Um, they're getting about $35 billion a year out of their tax revenues, but you don't see one united order anywhere in the church where they have a community where you have all things in common, right? Even though that was commanded, and it's the scripture says, Doctrine and Covenants, uh, you know, it is not given for one man to own that which above is above another, wherefore the whole world lieth in sin, we're supposed to be equal in all things. And in another place it says, if you would be uh, Zion people, you must be equal in all things. But they just continue to go whoring off after Babylon uh, for their wealth and all that, but they don't actually do what God has asked them to do. In another place, um, the Esquire magazine, Utah, how much money half the Mormon church uh, which that's the title of the article, and that was released in August of 1962, pages 86 and 90, R391. The church has attained through faithful tithes and shrewd investment in business operations. Like I said, businessmen have hijacked the church. Um, a spectacular wealth. It is fast becoming, if it is not already, the richest church of its size in the world. Unquestionably, it controls the greatest aggregation of capital in the states of the Rocky Mountain area. A poor Mormon farmer near the hamlets of Moroni, Ephraim, or Manti, education, uh, educated to the high standards of his church, might occasionally bristle at some family sacrifice necessary to meet his tithes if the extent of the church's wealth were known to him. So that's another thing, you know, like when they use $7 billion to to pay for that shopping mall downtown, $7 billion, they tore down perfectly good buildings to build something else, right? That the church used the money in their coffers, you know, if they gave that out among all of the, the active membership of the church, well, they say there's 15 billion members, right? There's about, or I'm sorry, 15 million members. There's about 5 million that are semi-active or active. But, okay, so if you take $7 billion and you divide it by 5 million people, I mean, we could all have stewardships and live united orders. It would not be a hard thing for them to do that, but they're not going to do it. Even though that's the, the the command of the Lord, that's not what they're that's not what they're going to do because they're businessmen in Babylon. What they've done is instead of having their husband, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord, he's the bridegroom and we're his bride, right? But we have switched our gaze to Babylon, to to the world, and we are pursuing Babylon, the world, instead of Christ our husband. So basically what we're doing is we are committing adultery on our husband with Babylon. The prophets and God 
calls us the whores of Babylon the Great because we go whoring off after other gods. But if we did if we did what God asked, we would be doing united orders, right? These higher laws. Well, let's talk about that. We're on page seventy-three of ninety-five thesis, and we're on topic fifty-two, the united order. In Acts chapter four, verse thirty-three, it says, "Neither said any of them that ought of the things." Let's see. Not all of the things which he possessed was his own. So he's like, I own nothing. But these things, all of all that I have, is had in common with the church, right? Because um, they had all things in common. That's Acts chapter four, verse thirty-three. In Moses chapter seven, verse eighteen, it says, "The Lord called his people Zion, because they were of one heart and one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there were no." poor among them. That's Zion's redemption. That's what we got to get back to in order to redeem Zion. If we're not living those laws, God won't redeem Zion. Fourth uh, Nephi chapter 1 verse 3, it says, and they had all things in common among them. Therefore, there were not rich and poor, bond and free, but they were all made free and partakers of the heavenly gift. That's where we need to get to. That's what God is asking for of us, but we don't do it. Anyway, in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 76, verses 3 through uh, three and 5, it must needs be that there be an organization of my people for a permanent and everlasting establishment and order of my church, that ye may be equal in the bonds of heavenly things, yea, and earthly things also. See, God wants us to be equal. He does not want us uh, to be struggling. He does not want there to be poor or rich. He wants us all to be made rich, but he wants us to be equal in all things. <clears throat> Continuing on, Doctrine and Covenant, section 51, verse 7, it says, And let every man deal honestly and be like un- or be alike among this people and achieve like, that ye may be one even as I have commanded you. DNC section 51, verse 9. And in other places, it says, Nevertheless, in your temple things ye shall be equal, and this not grudgingly. Otherwise, the abundance of the manifestations of the Spirit shall be withheld. DNC section 70, verse 14. Bergen Young said, Will the time ever come that we can commence and organize this people as a family? It will. Do we know how? Yes. What was the lack lacking in what was lacking in these revelations from Joseph to enable us to do so was revealed to me. And uh Brigham Young knew all about it. Uh and you can find that in Journal of Discourses, volume eleven, page three twenty six. Brigham Young also said in Journal of Discourses, the Lord has declared it to be his will that that his people enter into a covenant even as Enoch and he's his people did. That's that's Zion, right? Zion, which was taken up in, into heaven. That's the city of Enoch, which of necessity must must be before we shall have the privilege of building the center stake of Zion. Journal of Discourses, Volume 18, page 263. And there's actually a book if people want to uh, look more into this. If you go to the Kingdom of God or Nothing dot com and you uh, go to Arden Kraut, you will or you scroll down almost down to the very bottom, 
you can find the link called the United Order and learn more about that. This is just a brief synopsis of the way things have changed in the church from the days of Joseph Smith to, to, uh, to today, uh, to this time, to this modern time period, which, you know, uh, we're talking about from Joseph F. Smith on Wilfred Woodruff. But anyway, um, today the saints, uh, the saints of today are told to, um, that the Lord took away this principle. But there's no, let's say at the Lord, that have, have ever rescinded these things. None at all. They just stopped doing it. They stopped trying. In fact, when the government forced us to give up plural celestial marriage, which is a true principle, and you can find that in Section 132, the government also made us give up United Orders and the Council of 50, which is the government of God upon the earth. So you haven't, you don't have United Orders in the church anymore, and we are under covenant to our the beast basically that the governments of this world who would go whoring off after instead of our true husband, not to live the the laws, which our husband has given unto us. Are we going to be obedient as the bride of Christ? Or are we going to go whoring off after other gods? It's, it's our choice whether we do what God has asked us to do or not. Topic 53, the law of consecration. Acts chapter 2, verse 45, and, and they sold their possessions and goods and parted them all uh, to all men as every man had need. See, they had all things in common. DNC section 42, verse 32, every man shall be made accountable unto me, a steward over his own property or that which he has received by consecration, as much as sufficient for himself and his family. So, he consecrates everything that he has to the church and the church gives him back a stewardship that he receives by consecration sufficient for himself and his family. That's having all things in common. And it's so sad in the temples today, we all make the law, we make a covenant to live the law of consecration. Nobody lives it. And the devil comes out in the endowment and God had him do that. I mean, this is there because God, put it there in the endowment, right? The devil comes out and he says, all who will not live up to the covenant faith made this day will be in my power. So are we going to, I know he's a liar. I know he's a liar, but God had that put in the endowment. So basically it was God that, that put that there, right? Are we going to call God a liar? If we do not keep the covenants we've made this day, which part of that is the law of consecration, we will be in the power of Satan, firstly he. Are we going to do what God has asked or not? Continuing on, let's see here. This is Orson Pratt, who is an apostle of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I, I think he was one of Joseph Smith's apostles. Anyway, the Lord said in the re that revelation that the principle which he had revealed in relation to the properties of his church must be carried out to the very letter upon the land of Zion. And those individuals who would not give heed to it but sought to obtain their inheritances in, in, in an individual way by purchasing it themselves from the government should have their names blotted out from the book of the names of the righteous. So basically what he's doing, what he's saying here is, 
uh, these people who would not live the law of consecration and consecrate their wealth and their uh, all they have to the church to receive their inheritance from the church. Um, these people that take their money and they go buying, or you know, go to the government to get their whatever their property from the government, they'll be blotted out from the book, right? They'll be blotted out from the names of the righteous. And if their children pursue the same course, their names should be blotted out too. They and their children should not be known in the book of the law of the Lord as being entitled to an inheritance among the saints of God. We find, therefore, that the Lord drove out this people because we were unworthy to receive our inheritances by consecration. He's talking about being driven out of Nauvoo. As a people, we did not strictly comply with that which the Lord required. Neither did they comply in Kirtland. This ought to be an example for us who are living at a later, later, at a later period of, in the history of the church of the living God and who ought by this time to have become thoroughly experienced in the law of God. He's saying in the future, because they were in the curse, right? In section 124, it says, all they who hinder this work receive the curse of three to four generations, which is between 120 to 160 years. So there was a curse placed upon the church after the, uh, because of, they didn't do what they were supposed to do in Nauvoo, God did not fight the battles for them. He did not, uh, you know, they did not stay in their place as he said they would if they were obedient. The curse came upon the church, and they knew it. So he's saying here to a future generation, and, and it's really sad because the church will not put these quotes out there. They're hiding, and they sweep them under the rug. This ought to be an example for us who are living at a later period. He's talking to the church. A lady, somebody in the future uh, in the history of this church of the living God and who ought by this time in the future to have become thoroughly experienced in the law of God. Horace and Pratt, Journal of Discourses, volume 15, page 358. But are we, are we being experienced? Are we being taught the laws of God? No. We're being taught the ABC portion of the gospel and the law of consecration, even though we make covenants to live it and the United Order and all that, we're not taught because we've digressed into the ABC portion of the gospel. And they say, now they say, let the mysteries alone, right? Are you going to be obedient to God? And, and if, you, if you lack wisdom, you can go to God and ask him. And if you've studied it out, he will give you a witness. He will teach you by his spirit or by his own voice. We have to go to him to learn truth, right? Not wait for some hireling prophet to come along and tell us what to do or not tell us because they don't tell us, right? Anyway, continuing. Yet the revelation of consecration was one of the first commandments or revelations given to this people after they had the privilege of organizing themselves as the church. As a body, as the kingdom of God on the earth, I observed then and I now think that it will be one of the last revelations which the people will receive into their heart and understanding of their own free will and choice and esteem it as a pleasure, a privilege and a blessing unto them to observe and keep the most art, to observe and keep most holy. Journal of Discourses, uh, volume two, page two ninety nine, and that was Brigham Young. 
talking about that. But today, the law of consecration has not been taught, encouraged, or practiced in the church for over a hundred years. Topic 54, School of the Prophets. You can find that on page 75 of 95 Thesis by Ogden Kraut. I'm sure. Okay. Oh, my friend just messaged me. Um, uh, thank you for listening, uh, friend. I'm not gonna. T- I'm not gonna say who she is on Facebook. I mean, on that. <clears throat> but she's listening right now. So, anyway, um, and we've been friends for a long time. So, anyway, school of the prophets. Um, the Lord said that he desired to have a school of the prophets, which I command to be organized, DNC section 90, verse 7. Um, Joseph Smith said that the Lord had commanded them to establish a school of the prophets. This is the word of the Lord to us, and we must, yea, the, the Lord helping us, we will obey, as on condition of our obedience, he has promised us great things, yea, even a visit from the heavens to honor us with his own presence. We greatly fear before the Lord, lest we should fall of this great honor, which our master proposes to confer upon us. Teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 19. Uh, Brigham Young said, you have read probably that we are starting the school of the prophets. We will start the school of the prophets to increase in knowledge. Tomorrow evening we shall commence our course on lectures of theology. To that class I have invited a few, but not many. I believe I have invited the First Presidency, the Twelve Apostles, Bishop Hunter and his counselors, the First Seven Presidents of the Seventies, the Presidency of the High Priest's Quorum, the Presidency of the Stakes of Zion, the High the Bishops and their counselors, and the City Counselor. Brigham Young, Journal of Discourses, Volume 12, page 116. And somebody told me, because we don't have schools of the prophets today, they've been disbanded. Well, somebody's like, well, they meet in the temple every Thursday night. And I'm like, no, it's actually Thursday morning, and that's just to go over the business affairs of the church um, and, and the spiritual affairs. But that's not the school of the prophets, all right? Twelve, well, actually 15 men meeting in secret is not the school of the prophets. Like, even the bishops and their counselors were invited to attend the school of the prophets. All right, so what they do today is not the same. He's like, well, they just call it by another name. No, they actually don't. Uh, But Brigham Young said, the objective of the school of the prophets is to train ourselves until we can receive the order of Enoch in all its fullness. But see, they don't even care about that anymore. At all. You can find that in Journal of Discourses, Volume 12, page 210. Heber C. Kimball said, Will this school of the prophets stop? No, it was commenced in the days of Joseph, and it will not stop. Well, he was wrong about that because they gave it up. Um, you can find that in Journal of Discourses, Volume 12, page 189. We have here our schools of the prophets in which we are taught how to manage our temple affairs and how to avoid the snares that exist in the world, how to, do, how to deal with and whom to let alone, how to raise stock, how to cultivate our farms, 
how to conduct all the affairs incident to human existence. We are also taught about God and eternity, about our associations before we came here, our relationship to God at the present time, the destiny of this and other worlds, and everything pertaining to this life and that which is to come. Joseph F. Smith, Journal Discourses, Volume 12, page 349. But today, shortly after the turn of the century, so basically the 1900s, the School of the Prophets was discarded. Once again, God did not give a command. He did not rescind his order to, to have schools of the prophets. You're not going to find a revelation for that because he actually commanded, uh, he's commanded me to organize one. This is kind of part of that, um, but not fully. But, you know, God still wants these things to happen on the earth. Continuing on, topic 55, Kingdom of God. Page 76, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all the kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Oh, let's see, DNC 65, verse 2. The keys of the kingdom of God are committed in the men on the earth, and from thence shall the gospel roll forth unto the ends of the earth, as the stone which is cut out of the mountain without hands shall roll forth, until it has filled the whole earth. So uh, the stone actually is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You can find a reference to that in Genesis chapter 49 the stone of Yosef. Uh, just like Jesus Christ is the stone of Judah, um, I am the stone of Yosef. That's Messiah ben Yosef ben Ephraim, who is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to his people, just as Jesus Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to his people. But anyway, this is the kingdom of God that rolls forth, just like the stone rolls forth as well. Um, continuing on, the prophets gave the full and complete organization to this kingdom the spring before he was killed. The kingdom is the kingdom Daniel spoke of, which was to be set up in the last days. It is a kingdom that was not given to another people. Now, I want, you, I want to give you these few words. The kingdom that protects every person, every sect, that's religious denomination, and all people upon the face of the earth, in their legal rights. I shall not tell you the name of the members of this kingdom, neither shall I read you of the Constitution, but the Constitution was given by revelation. He's talking about the kingdom of God that comes, or the church comes out of the kingdom, but the church is not the kingdom. It's not. The kingdom is political. That's the political portion of the king. Uh, you know, it's the political kingdom of God. The church comes out of it, but it is not part of it. And in 1892, I think it was, uh, we had to give up the Council of 50, which was part of the kingdom of God on the earth. Now, we don't have that anymore. Anyway, um, but that was given by Brigham Young, and it's recorded in Desert News, August 1854. We are asked, is the church of God and the kingdom of God the same organization? And we are informed that some of the brethren hold, hold that they are separate. 
this is the correct view to take. The kingdom of God is separate is a separate organization from the Church of God. There may be men acting as officers in the kingdom of God who will not be members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. George Q. Cannon, Joseph Smith, and World Government, page 9. It's not that they are... I, this is what I believe. Okay, so they believe that maybe there would be people who are Baptists in the kingdom of God, and maybe we'll have some Catholics, and maybe we'll have some Presbyterians and some Lutherans. I believe that the members of the kingdom who are not part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints come out of the fundamentalist people, the Church of the Living Messiah, the, Church of the Righteous Branch of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, maybe even FLDS, uh, the Fundamentalist church, uh, Latter-day Saint Church, whatever, uh, Centennial Park, probably, you know, like, just because, you know, th- these other groups have priesthood as well, at least they did, you know, but they are part, are, I believe that if they're not part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and they're in the kingdom, they had to have either come out of these groups or been independent. I don't know, it's just I guess that's speculation because they haven't gotten revelation on it. But I know that the members of the Church of the Living Messiah are going to be part of that kingdom because uh, I received revelation about that. Thus say it the Lord revelations, like the ones you find in your Doctrine and Covenants. Um, yeah, I've received those too, uh, and so have other people as well. Anyway, continuing, as observed by one of the speakers this morning, that the kingdom grows out of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but it is not the church. For a man may be, may be a legislature in that body which will issue laws and sustain the inhabitants of the earth in their individual rights and still not belong to the church of Jesus Christ at all. And further, though a man may not even believe in any religion, it would be a perf- or it would be perfectly right when necessary to give him the privilege of holding a seat among the body or that body which will make laws to govern all the nations of the earth and control those who make no profession of religion at all. For that body would be governed, controlled, and dictated to acknowledge others in those rights which they wish to enjoy. Uh, enjoyed themselves. <laughs> Brigham Young Journal of Discourses, Volume Two, Page Three Ten. I don't know if I agree with Brigham on all of his uh, all of his opinions. More on page seventy-seven of ninety-five thesis. This volume, Joseph Smith and World Government, is an important contribution to Mormon literature for the last three re- or for at least three. Re- three reasons. First, it is the only published analysis that has been made to date of Joseph Smith's concept of world government. It gives conclusive evidence that the prophet included within his concept of the kingdom of God, the development of a political government that would be administered under the direction of the priesthood of Zion. The kingdom of God then was considered as something more than the church. It included the idea of a future world government where the church and state were to be separate bodies, but united in the fact that both institutions were to be subject to priesthood direction. See, that's the way it was back in the days of Alma and Mosiah. Alma was over the church, but Mosiah was the king, right? In the millennium, you're going to have two world capitals. You're going to have 
Jerusalem, and you're going to have Zion. One is the political portion of the kingdom of God. The other is the theological portion of the kingdom of God. Separate, but working together in unison, and both have priesthood bodies that are ruling over it. The kingdom of God, separate from the, the church of God. It, they're two separate things. Anyway, secondly, this study establishes the fact that Joseph Smith laid the foundation of the kingdom of God in its political, um, as well as its religious sphere. Thus, he revealed the, portion, or the political principles and philosophies of the millennial government and organized it in an embry, embryonic form upon the earth. Third, for the time, our first time, much of, his, of the history of this new adjunct to the priesthood is presented in public, our published form. From the spring of 1844 to, the, to at least 1870, the political organ, the prophet organized, uh, played a dominant role in the history of the Mormon movement. It was this body, not the church, he's talking about the kingdom of God, that planned and carried out the exodus. After locating the saints in the Great Basin, this political body then organized and incorporated itself into the state, or what I would like, or what I would rather say, that the nation of Deseret. All this, all, all this has escaped the students of Mormonism. Until now, neither the fact that such a body existed nor its influence in the church's history has been understood. Uh, and you can find that by, uh, written by Hiram uh, Anders on uh, Joseph Smith and World Government. But today, the kingdom of God, this is uh, what James E. Talmadge said in Jesus the Christ, which is false doctrine, and it contradicts former revelation. The kingdom of God is the church established by divine authority upon the earth. This institution asserts no claim to temporal rule over nations. Its scepter of power is that of the holy priesthood. To be used in the preaching of the gospel and in ministering its ordinance for the salvation of mankind or the living and the dead. So he's like, the kingdom's just the church That's false doctrine Alright, let's get into some stuff That I don't really want to get into Blood atonement This is portion 56A Which is on page 78 Blood atonement uh, Genesis chapter 9 verse 6 Whoso sheddeth man's blood By men shall his blood be shed For in the image of God uh, image of God made he man. Okay, that's Genesis as blood atonement. In Numbers 35, verses 30 and 31 of the inspired translation, it says, Whosoever killeth, or whoso killeth any person, the murderer shall be put to death. By the mouth of the witnesses, one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. So you've got to have at least two or three witnesses. Moreover, ye shall take no satisfaction for the life of a murderer, which is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. Okay. In Romans chapter 1, verse 32, 
Who knoweth the judgments of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death? Okay. Doctrine and Covenants, section 34, verse 8. We believe that the commission of a crime should be punished according to the nature of the offense. All right, so if you kill somebody by, by spilling their blood, guess what? You need to have your blood spilled on the ground as well. That's actually why the the uh, execution, one of the uh, the ways you could be executed in the state of Utah for a long time was firing squad. It's so that your blood would run up on the ground. It's part of the blood atonement thing. And you can find more information about that at the kingdom of God or nothing.com, click on Arden Crowd and go down to Blood Atonement. There's a whole book about these things. And I don't think I'll ever read that on this program, but I maybe I have. I don't I know I've read it. But I there's some other things I'd like to talk about, so I don't like these topics, even though I'm in favor of capital punishment when it's warranted. Um, but I'm more in favor of like spanking people's butts with the canes like they do over in Malaysia. I think if somebody got in a huge trouble instead of spending them to jail or sending them to jail, he should just spank the butt, you know, with a cane. Uh, anyway, huge topic diversion. I mean, then the person can go on with their life and not have to spend years in jail, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. Anyway, we'll see. All right, in debate, George A. Smith said imprisonment was better than hanging. I replied, I was opposed to hanging. Even if I, if a man killed another, I will shoot him or cut off his head or spill and spill his blood on the ground and let the smoke thereof ascend up to God. And if I, if I ever have the privilege of making a law on that subject, I will, I will have to. Uh, I will have it so. Joseph Smith, Doctrinal History of the Church, Volume 5, page 296. So Joseph Smith was saying that, that, you know, if these things, you shouldn't hang a man because when you hang a man, their blood cannot go to the ground, right? There's actually this curse. I'm not exactly sure how it works, but if you spill the blood of a man upon the ground, there's there's an atonement made. But I'm not, like I said, I'm not an expert in these things, so I'm just going to, I think I'll just leave that alone. So... Did you bring the ice cream? Oh, you thought about it. Kim thought about bringing the ice cream, and she didn't. Oh, oh, good. She got me an energy drink, so I can... Oh, two energy drinks. Ooh, going to be buzzed tonight. <laughs> Too much caffeine. <laughs> okay, thank you. All right, in the uh, first presidency uh, message in the Millennial Star, 52 verses 33 through 34, it says that we, uh, that we regard the killing of human beings except in conformity with the civil law as a capital crime which should be punished by the shedding of the blood of the criminal after a public trial before a legally constitu- constituted court of the land. All right, that was Joseph Smith, right? Okay, but today, the doctrine of blood atonement is never taught and rarely mentioned. The idea of capital punishment has almost become eradicated by the communists, psychologists, psychiatrists, and liberal educators. All right, topic 56B, Oath of Vengeance, on page 79 of 95 Thesis. 
The oath of vengeance as it was originally incorporated in the endowment ceremony as was follows. All right, we're about to piss off some people. But you know what? We're not allowed to talk about the tokens um, and the signs, but we can talk about these other things, all right? And uh, this stuff was taken out in the 90s. So, you know, they just changed the way things were done and they took out this stuff. Anyway, so we're going to hear about some stuff that they took out of the endowment. You and each of you do solemnly promise and vow that you will pray and never cease to pray and never cease to importune the high heaven to avenge the blood of the prophets on this nation and that you will teach this to your children and your children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Uh, so that's the that's the uh, oath of vengeance. All right, let's see. In another place, in the Doctrine and Covenants, what's that? Well, Kim's asking, I thought vengeance was a bad thing. No, Kim, listen to it. This, is, this was in the temple, and, and we've actually, I think this is in the endowments that we've received. You and each of you do solemnly promise and vow that you will pray not that you will act in vengeance, that you will pray and never cease to pray and never cease to importune the high heaven to avenge the blood of the prophets. Who is he talking about? Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith. The blood of the prophets on this nation, because it was the nation that allowed this to happen, and that you will teach this to your children and your children's children unto the third and fourth generation. So, it's not that we're going out and doing anything. We're just asking God to take care of some business, which he's going to do, but we should be praying to, to God for this to happen. Uh, unless you love Babylon so much that you don't want it to happen, which I'm kind of like, you know, I like the comforts of Babylon, but I don't like the fact that they will not let us live our religion as God intended us to live it. You know, in a society of freedom, we have no freedom. You're not muted. Are you not on the air? Kim wants to go to sleep. Oh, she has to. Uh, so I'm laying in our bed with the laptop on my lap or on my stomach. And Kim usually goes to bed at midnight, and I'm not usually laying here in bed. She's usually able to sleep, and I'm just like, I'll sprout that all over the bed. Relax in, and she can't go to sleep with me sitting here reading. So anyway, but if she was really that tired, she would just fall asleep. <laughs> can't we can't talk and be muted? What tonight? I'm not going anywhere. All right, maybe we'll just actually. Uh, finish this topic and then I'll uh, be kind to my wife and put on a pre-recorded portion of the show. <laughs> but I don't want to end on the, on the Oath of Vengeance. It's not a happy place for me to end. I'm not going anywhere. She's like, okay, go. Like, well. Alright. Uh, their innocent blood um and their innocent blood on the banner of liberty and on the Magna Carta of the United States is an ambassador for the re religion of Jesus Christ, 
that will touch the hearts of honest men among all nations and their innocent blood with the innocent blood of all the martyrs under the altar that John saw will cry unto the Lord of hosts till he avenges the blood on the earth. Amen. That's Doctrine and Covenants section 135 verse 7 speaking of the revelation that uh, John the Revelator saw. Mosiah Hancock, journal, page 20. After the people had gone home, my father, Levi Hancock, took me again into the mansion and told me to place one hand on Joseph's breast. Joseph is a a corpse when this is happening. Uh, This is in Nauvoo, just after the death of Joseph Smith and Hiram Smith. To place one hand on Joseph's breast and to raise my other arm uh, to the square and raise with and swear with hand uplifted that I would never make a compromise with any of the sons of hell, which which vow I took with the determination to fulfill to the very letter. I took the same vow with Hiram. End quote. Mr. Henry Henry L. Larson, being sworn as a witness for the objectors, testified he had been a member of the Mormon Church for many years and had officiated in the endowment house between 1865 and 1869. Being examined by Mr. Baskins, he testified, uh, quote, there were obligations and covenants entered into in the endowment ceremonies. There's a great deal to them. There's a covenant to avenge the blood of the prophets. Reference is made to Joseph and Hiram. It's our in substance, it is you and each of you covenant and agree to avenge the blood of the prophets, Joseph and Hiram, who have sealed their testimony with their blood. This you teach to your children and your children's children unto the third and fourth generation, with some other things that are added to it. The Inside of Mormonism, page 52 and 53. So I think that that's actually a perversion of what was taught, but. There, this is there, just making it, you know, showing that this is this, this is was part of things before, but today the oath of vengeance is no longer even part of the temple ceremony. All right, we'll just do one more because this is about the ordinances, and then um, I will. The kids like, oh, that's a good thing to fall asleep to. She's being ornery. She's hormonal. <laughs> She's like, whatever. Uh, 57 uh, ordinances, topic 57 ordinances, or on page 80. The earth is also defiled under the inhabitants thereof because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinances, and broken the everlasting covenant. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 5. He's actually speaking of our day. He was also speaking of the days of the uh, northern kingdom or Ephraim. So basically he's like prophesying about Ephraim, (laughs) you know? Oh, anyway. (sighs) Joseph Smith said, if there is no change of ordinances, there is no change of priesthood. That's in page uh, 158 of teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, but also, he said, where there is no change of priesthood, there is no change of ordinances. That's a chiasm. 
there, if there is no change of ordinances, there is no change of priesthood. Where there is no change of priesthood, there is no change of ordinances. That's in the uh, teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 308. So if you change the ordinances, you change the priesthood. And if you change the priesthood, the ordinances are changed. Like, they go hand in hand, right? They're the same today, forever, you know, yesterday, today, and forever. God gave them a certain way. We don't have any right to streamline them or pick and choose or pluck out things we don't like or whatever. Um, continuing on, this course is of Brigham Young, page 31. Quote, some of you may ask, is there a single ordinance to be dispersed with? Is there any of the commandments of God that um, that God has enjoined upon the people that he will excuse from uh, them from obeying? No, not one. No matter how trifling or small in our own estimation. See, we're not supposed to change things, right? But the church does because the church is run by imperfect mortal men who apostatize, basically, and go whoring off after the God of this world, which is not our God. All right. Quote, God purposed in himself that there should be, should not be an eternal fullness until every dispensation should be fulfilled and gathered and are gathered together in one. Therefore, he set the ordinances to be the same forever and set Adam to watch over them, to reveal them from heaven to man or send angels to reveal them. Teachings of the Prophet are Joseph Smith's teachings, Paul, uh, volume 113 and 114. Brigham Young said, it is, that it, it is said the priesthood was taken from the church. He's talking about the apostasy. But it is not so. The church went from the priesthood and continued to travel in the wilderness, turned from the commandments of the Lord, and instituted other ordinances. See, they changed the ordinances and they went away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how they apostatized. And and the priesthood was not taken from them. They actually left the priesthood and went wandering off after other gods. And you can find that in Journal of Discourses, Volume 12, page 69. Wilfred Woodruff said on September 2nd, 1876 in Desert News, the gospel is now being preached to all the world by commandment of the Lord to uh, to the prophet Joseph. Let's see. The gospel now being preached to all the world by commandment of the Lord to the prophet Joseph Smith is the same as taught by Adam, Enoch, and the Savior. It never changes the lapse in time, of time. Its ordinances and laws are always the same, worlds without end, end quote. But today, we are taught the Improvement Era, Volume 8, verse, or page 11, or 111. There is a question that comes to my mind. If men now think they can get along without the gifts of the gospel, May not the time come that they may believe that they can get along without its ordinances? See, they have to make an excuse to to why the gifts of the Spirit are not had among the church, right? Uh, so that's what he's he's talking about. Anyway, when we come back tomorrow, we'll talk about uh, rebaptism and ninety five other ordinances that have been changed, and. Um, 
Yeah, we're only going out 15 minutes early. So, anyway, thank you for listening to the program, everyone. Um, hopefully I can get some sleep tomorrow. And, uh, yeah, just not have to deal with all this stuff. Um, you know, but then uh, when we do move to the place that we're moving to, um, <laughs> We'll be pre-recording the shows or we'll be doing them live in the daytime. But it'll be like, we'll probably be doing the shows like between noon to 3 p.m. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work. We might just have to rebroadcast. I might even start doing the conference calls again and then record it and then rebroadcast it on Blog Talk Radio and in podcasts. I don't know. We'll have to take a look at that. Um, when uh, I come up to Provo every night, that's when I'm going to sleep. And then when I'm home, I'll be able to spend it with my family. But we'll also do the radio program during the day, like I said. So, I don't know. Maybe more listeners will listen if we do it at 7 p.m. instead of 11 to 1 at night. I don't know. Anyway, all right, well, I'm going to excuse me. And you go drink those energy drinks. I'm going to just let it play on, um, oh, where is that thing here? Just the time is now. Uh, I'm just going to let it play on the time is now, which but I know we've heard it a million times, but it's the longest. I've got two of them on here, and they're the longest clips. Um, so when I do this, I'm going to put it on that, so I don't have to worry about it. So anyway, Let's listen to The Time Is Now by Jake Hilton. Also, uh, this is taken from a YouTube video called The Time Is Now by Jake Hilton. Uh, It's over 50 hours of documentaries. Very good stuff. Don't agree with everything he says. He doesn't understand some things. Like when they talk about the Messiah that Rabbi Kadori, like Rabbi Kadori saw Jesus Christ, um, but he also talks about this other Messiah who will use the media to come. And the prophecy was that that very shortly, uh, a very short time after um, Ariel Sharon died, then this Messiah would come that would use the media to speak to people, right? Well, Jake Hilton doesn't understand Messiah then Yudah, Messiah then Yosef. He thinks that Jesus Christ and Jehovah are the same person, even though, you know, uh, in Ether chapter 3, Jesus says, Never at any time have I showed myself unto men, but Jehovah walked before the flood. And this was after the flood that Jesus was saying this. Also, Jehovah was the resurrected being before the resurrection, okay, because he was resurrected on an older earth, did not lay his body down again. He was a redeemer on an older world. Jesus is our redeemer. He was a spirit until he took immortal probation. And then he became a resurrected being, you know, in the meridian of time. Two different people, whatever. He doesn't understand that, but he also doesn't understand the fact that God would send a Messiah from the tribe of Joseph to the house of Ephraim. And that he would use the media to speak to the world, which prophecy is now being fulfilled in your ears. So anyway, we'll listen to that. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the program. God bless. Goodbye.
And now we get into the doctrine of Balaam. What is the doctrine of Balaam? Most Christians today probably don't even know who Balaam is, let alone his doctrine. You might recognize the story if I describe it to you. This is an account from Numbers chapter 22 to Numbers chapter 24. Balaam is the prophet, it was a wicked prophet, who he was riding his donkey. Angel of the Lord appeared with a sword ready to kill Balaam. And Balaam's donkey saw the angel and stopped, would not go any further. So what does Balaam do? He starts beating his donkey, beating his as the scripture says, he starts beating his ass. And on the third time that this happens, finally the donkey looks up to him and says, why are you beating me? And what's even more surprising is Balaam responds to the donkey. He's like, well, because you're not doing what I tell you to do. I want you to move, go forward. And that's when Balaam's eyes are opened. He sees into the spirit realm and he sees this angel standing right in front of him with this sword ready to slice and dice him. So maybe now you at least have heard the story before. You've heard the account of Balaam. But you may not know the whole story, at least what happened from beginning to end. Balaam, he was, yes, he was a prophet, but he was a wicked prophet. In other words, he knew how to tap into revelation. He knew how to tap into the spirit realm. But he did it for money. Priestcraft. He did it for money. And that was his sin. That wasn't his doctrine, but that was his sin. And what happened was, as the Israelites were incredibly numerous, a vast, vast people with a vast army, there was a king in the land by the, king, by the name of Balak. And Balak, when he sees the Israelites coming into his land, he goes, I need to destroy these people. But, but they're, way no, they're way more numerous than me. There's no way I'm going to be able to destroy them. So, ah, there's Balaam. And Balaam, he can come and he can curse the Israelites for me. And if Balaam curses the Israelites, then... I'll be able to destroy them. So he sends his servants to go find Balaam. They get Balaam and they start bringing him to him. Balaam tells the servants right from the beginning, the only thing I can do is tell you what Yahovah says. So whatever word Yahovah puts in my mouth, that's what I'm going to say. And the servants go, okay, whatever. So they bring Balaam to King Balak. So what Balaam does, that's Balaam in the illustration here in the foreground with his hand raised. That's King Balak in the background. And what Balaam does is he has 14 animals brought to him and seven altars erected. And two animals are sacrificed on each of those seven altars. And once the sacrifices have been completed, then he's able to, again, tap into the spirit realm. He opens his mouth. Yahovah fills his mouth, and he, he wanted to pronounce a curse, or at least King Balak wanted Balaam to pronounce a curse on Israel. But what came out of Balaam's mouth was not a curse, but a blessing. He blessed Israel that first time. And King Balak goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? I hired you to 
curse Israel, not bless them. And Balaam goes, I open my mouth and Yahovah, he, he's the one who spoke those words. Yahovah wants these people to be blessed. So they're blessed. Okay. But maybe, what if we try it again? Let's go to a different location. Let's go to another mountaintop, get another 14 animals, and let's sacrifice two of each of these animals on seven altars, and then I'll try again. So that's what they do. They try again. Balaam opens his mouth for the second time, intending, let's, let's curse these people as King Balak has ordered. No, doesn't curse them, blesses them. Second time, a blessing upon Israel. King Balak is getting really upset right now. He's like, I'm paying you a lot of money. I'm paying you a lot of money. Why are you blessing these people? I'm ordering you to curse them. Balaam says, Yahovah doesn't want them cursed. He wants them blessed. And I can only do what he tells me to do. But maybe, let's try it a third time. <laughs> let's try it a third time. Let's go to another location, another mountaintop. Let's get 14 more animals, seven more altars. Let's sacrifice these 14 animals on these seven altars. Let's try for a third time because maybe a third time's a charm, right? So they do. They try a third time. And by the way, this pattern of Balaam and these, the 14 animals on the seven altars, three different times, 14, 14, 14, is a pattern for the genealogy of Miriam or Mary in Matthew chapter one, which is, there was 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations from Abraham to Jesus Christ. So 14, 14, 14. That's what happens with Balaam. Three different locations, seven altars at each location, 14 animals at each location. Let's curse Israel. Nope. Blessing, blessing. And the third time, an even greater blessing. And by the third time, Balak is so upset that he says, this is Numbers 24, verse 10, and Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together and Balak said unto Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies, to curse Israel. And behold, thou hast altogether blessed them these three times. And Balaam said unto Balak, Spake I not also to thy messengers, which thou sendest unto me, saying, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment of Yahovah to do either good or bad of mine own mind. But what Yahovah saith, that will I speak. And then Balaam opens his mouth again, and he prophesies of the coming Messiah that would come out of Israel. And this is Balaam's Messiah prophecy. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Seth. And Edom shall be a possession, Seir shall also be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion, and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. 
Three times Balaam opens his mouth and it's bless Israel, bless Israel, bless Israel. And then he opens his mouth a fourth time and he prophesies about the coming Messiah that will come out of Israel and have dominion over all the world, all the cities of the world. And Balak is, you know what? He's had enough of this Balaam. He's had enough. And it says at the end of the chapter, 24, verse 25, and Balaam rose up and went and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. And that's the account, or at least the historical narrative of Balaam, what happened with Balaam. But in order to understand the doctrine of Balaam, you have to read further. Not the sin of Balaam. The sin of Balaam is his priestcraft, that he did what he did for money. But his doctrine is something different, that he taught to Balak. But in order to understand that, you've got to really dig deep into the scriptures. Really dig deep. And you will see in a moment how this is so important in its connection with homosexuality and the sins of a nation. The doctrine of Balaam. What is it? First, the sin of Balaam was priestcraft. Second Peter 2.15 They have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages, the money of unrighteousness. Woe unto them, says Jude, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. You're going to need to know the Old Testament in order to know who Peter and Jude are referring to here. So again, this is the error of Balaam. This is the sin of Balaam, the love of money. And what do we know from 1 Timothy 6.10? The love of money is the root of all evil. But that's not his doctrine. That was his sin. We turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 14. And the Lord says to John, but I, Jesus Christ, Yeshua Messiah, I have a few things against thee, speaking to the assembly at Pergamos, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. And you're like, well, that, I didn't read that in Numbers. Well, you didn't read it right there in chapter 24, but you get it later. Because chapter 25 of Numbers, the very next verse, here we have Balaam goes back to his place, Balak goes his way, and the very next verse, it starts talking about Israel starts committing wickedness. Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 9. And Israel abode in Shittim began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And Moab is the land or the kingdom of Balak. It was his kingdom, Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat and bow down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. And the anger of Yahovah was kindled against Israel. And there was a plague. There was a plague. There was a judgment by God. 
and those that died in the plague were 24,000. Where did Israel get the idea to start doing this stuff, to start committing whoredoms with the daughters of Moab and to bow down to the gods of Moab, to join himself unto Baal Peor, unto the gods of Moab? Where did they get that idea? Balaam. Balaam taught Balak, the king, if you want to curse Israel, this is how you do it. You get Israel to stop being righteous and start being wicked. Numbers 31, verse 16. Behold, these, meaning Balak's people of the land of Moab, these people caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against Yahovah in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of Yahovah, where 20 and 4,000 of the people of Israel died. Plague. Balaam counseled Balak as to how to curse Israel. And that is the doctrine of Balaam, and that is exactly what is happening in America today. The doctrine of Balaam. You see, Satan, Lucifer, he knows exactly how to destroy a nation. And the people who serve him know how to destroy a nation. And those people are who? You turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and the Greek word is kosmokrateros. Kosmokrateros, which means the rulers of the people, the rulers of the world, the wicked rulers of this world. They know exactly how to destroy a nation. How do you do it? You can't do it if the people are righteous. It's impossible. And Satan knows this. And Balaam knew it. That's why when Balaam, he opened his mouth those three times to curse Israel, Yehovah puts in his mouth, he, he blesses Israel. Why? Because Israel was righteous. So how do you do it? It's impossible to destroy a nation that's righteous. But if you can get a righteous people to become wicked, then God, under his own law, has no choice but to curse that people. And that is exactly what Balaam counseled Balak to do. And that is exactly what's happening in America. America was righteous. And Satan knows perfectly well, if the people are righteous, it's impossible to destroy them. You can't. It's impossible. No power on earth or in hell can ever, ever, ever destroy a nation or a people that is righteous, that is keeping God's commandments. You can't do it. If you can get the people to join themselves with Babylon, if you can get the people to join themselves with Baal Peor, and they no longer are keeping God's commandments, but they're now keeping the commandments of the world, they're keeping the commandments of men, and they become wicked and defiled, then 
Yahovah will curse them, and then they'll be destroyed. What happened in the month of June with this decision to legalize same-sex marriage throughout the United States, unless the people of America repent now, this decision by the Supreme Court was America's death sentence. This was us, just like ancient Israel, joining ourselves with Moab, with the gods of this world, sinning, no longer being righteous, but being wicked as an entire nation, and the land is defiled because of it. And we are cursed, and the plague of destruction will come upon us very soon. And to all those that teach and practice the doctrine of Balaam, in that you get a righteous people to become wicked, take you several generations, and Satan again knows this, it might take you 200 years to destroy a righteous nation. But if you just do it slowly and gradually and persistently over time and over many generations, the doctrine of Balaam is how you destroy a nation. But to those who practice it, the doctrine of Balaam, the scriptures are a warning to you that you also will be destroyed by God's people. Numbers 31, verse 8, what happened to Balaam? Balaam also, the son of Beor, the house of Israel, slew with the sword. Balaam, the people of Moab, they were destroyed by the children of Israel after they had repented of their wickedness. It's a warning to all those doers of wickedness throughout the world that push the doctrine of Balaam and have taken our nation that was originally founded by our founding fathers on the law of God and over many generations we've gone from being a righteous people to a very, very wicked people. And in the space of not many years, that wickedness has just accelerated. It's a warning to the people that push and practice the doctrine of Balaam and those that accept the doctrine of Balaam. You will be destroyed. Moving on to the third subject of the what? Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri revelation. The Messiah is. This man right here is Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri, and the man he's shaking hands with is the current Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. Yitzhak Kaduri passed away several years ago in January 28 of 2006 at the age of at least 104. 104. Now that is the minimum age because the truth is we don't know exactly how old the man was. We know that he was just really old. And the minimum age of when he died was 104. But he could have been as old as 118. Again, we just we don't know exactly when he was born. We don't have those records. But Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri was a man that in his later years, just before he died, about two years before he died, he met the Messiah. The promised Messiah from their scripture from the Old Testament that the Messiah would come and he met him. 
in visions, in dreams, and he spoke to his family about the Messiah all the time. His son David Kaduri said, My father has met the Messiah in a vision and told us that he would come soon. Yitzhak Kaduri, he meets the Messiah in visions, in dreams, and he's telling his family about meeting the Messiah, but he didn't tell them who the Messiah was. Or in other words, he didn't give a name to the Messiah, at least not until he was very, very close to dying. And what happened was, just before his death, he wrote a note, a little tiny letter. And right there on the right-hand side of the image, that is the note that he wrote. And he gave it to his fellow rabbis in a sealed envelope. And he told them, this note contains the name of the Messiah. But don't open this note, don't open this envelope until one year after my death. So I'm going to die very soon, and after I've been dead for one year, then you can open this envelope and you can read my note and you can know the name of the Messiah. So that's exactly what happened. Yitzhak Aduri, he passes away January 28, 2006, and one year later, around January 28, 2007, his rabbi friends, they open up the envelope, they pull out the note from Yitzhak Kaduri, and they read it. And this is the English translation of that note. It reads, Concerning the letter abbreviation of the Messiah's name, he will lift the people and prove that his word and law are valid. This I have signed in the month of mercy, Yitzhak. He will lift the people and prove that his word and law are valid. And he says that the, it is a letter abbreviation of the Messiah's name. So what do you do? Here it is in the Hebrew down at the bottom. He will lift the people and prove that his word and law are valid. And you take the first letter of each of those Hebrew words and reading right to left, you take that first letter and you put them all together, which creates that name. What is that name? How do you pronounce that in Hebrew? Yehoshua. That's right, Yehoshua. The very same Yehoshua, who is our salvation. Yehoshua, or the shortened form, Yeshua, HaMashiach, Ben Elohim. Yehovah is salvation the Anointed One, the Son of God. And this man, Yitzhak Kaduri, in the last few years of his life, because of his righteousness, because he had sanctified himself, he came to know Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, he's no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that fears him, fears God, and keeps his commandments, works righteousness, is accepted of him, is accepted of God. Rabbi Yitzhak Kaduri is one of those, fully accepted by God. And he saw him in vision, and he wrote down his name. And he also gave a prophecy. 
a very, very significant prophecy. It's what's come to be called the Ariel Sharon prophecy. This man here is Ariel Sharon. He was the past prime minister of Israel. Again, the current prime minister is Benjamin Netanyahu. Yitzhak Kaduri gave a very significant prophecy concerning this man. And the prophecy was that the Messiah, who he named as being Yehoshua, come soon after Ariel Sharon's death. Ariel Sharon fell into a coma only 24 days before Yitzhak Kaduri died. From January 4, 2006 to January 11, 2014, Ariel Sharon was in a coma. And then he passed away. January 11, 2014. Yitzhak Kaduri on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement, 2005, told his fellow rabbis who the Messiah was and how they would recognize him. He said, It is hard for many good people in the society to understand the person of the Messiah. The leadership and order of a Messiah of flesh and blood is hard to accept for many in the nation. As leader, the Messiah will not hold any office but will be among the people and use the media to communicate. His reign will be pure and without personal or political desire. During his dominion, only righteousness and truth will reign. Will all believe in the Messiah right away? No. In the beginning, some of us will believe in him and some not. It will be easier for non-religious people to follow the Messiah than for orthodox people. Why? Because the strictly orthodox Jews of today, which modern-day Judaism is just ancient Phariseeism. That's all it is. The, the Pharisees of 2,000 years ago are the orthodox Jews of today. It's, they're the same people, and they're bogged down under the same false traditions, the same false traditions of their fathers, the lies of their fathers that they have inherited. And just as the Pharisees had a very, very hard time accepting Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, they'll have a very hard time accepting him today. It will be easier for non-religious people to follow the Messiah than for Orthodox people. The revelation of the Messiah will be fulfilled in two stages. First, meaning his first coming, the first time Jesus came 2,000 years ago, first he will actively confirm his position as Messiah without knowing himself that he is the Messiah. At least I believe that what he's, Yitzhak Kaduri is saying is that, and this is what DNC 93 teaches, is that Jesus Christ grew grace for grace. He didn't receive the fullness of his Father right at first, but he received it grace for grace, as we all need to follow in that same pattern. So when Jesus was a child, he didn't know that he was the Messiah, but he grew in grace for grace until he received the fullness of the Father, and then he knew what his calling was. So that is my belief that what Yitzhak Kaduri was saying when he said, first, he, the Messiah, will actively confirm his position as Messiah without knowing himself that he is the Messiah. Then, meaning Secondly, he will reveal himself to some Jews, not necessarily to 
wise Torah scholars. <laughs> Again, that is so important. The scholars are the ones that think. They're the ones that think, ah, oh, if God's going to talk to anybody, he's going to talk to us because, because we, we are scholars. We are the scholarly men. We are the wise men. God wouldn't talk to in the simple things of this world. No. He doesn't use the weak and simple things of the world to thrash the nations by the power of his spirit. No, God would never do that. He would talk to the, the wise scholars first. One of those false traditions of men. Because these scholars are lifted up in the pride of their own eyes. They become wicked and God goes, I'm not going to talk to you. You don't listen to me. Why would I talk to you? I'm going to talk to those that will listen to me. Then he will reveal himself to some Jews, not necessarily to wise Torah scholars. It can be even simple people. <laughs> the weak and the simple people will talk with God. Only then he will reveal himself to the whole nation. The people will wonder and say, what? That's the Messiah? Many, now this is key, many have known his name, but have not believed that he is the Messiah. He died shortly thereafter, but first he gave that note saying, one year after I'm dead, you read that note and it will tell you the name of the Messiah. A name that many have known speaking to, again, the Jewish population. Many of the Jews have known his name, but have not believed that he is the Messiah. That is the Messiah. Yehoshua, Yahovah is salvation, who we would call today Jesus. And then he said, when he comes, the Messiah will rescue Jerusalem from foreign religions that want to rule the city. They will not succeed, for they will fight against one another. That is very, very significant. Foreign religions. Very, very significant to the next subject we will be talking about, the mark or the name of the beast and its connection to Islam. But if you want to know the whole story about Yitzhak Duri, I'd recommend you read the book or you watch the documentary, The Rabbi Who Found Messiah, the story of Yitzhak Kaduri and his prophecies of the end time. Fascinating information, but what you need to know for a fact is that God is no respecter of persons. He will talk and show himself to anyone, anywhere, as long as they are willing to listen and obey him, as long as they've sanctified themselves, and they'll listen and obey. They'll hear him. They will the, the Hebrew word, which we will bring up throughout this whole teaching, because it's so important that you understand, the Hebrew word is Shema. Shema. And it means, it's translated in English as hear, as if you just hear something. But the accurate translation is listen and obey. You hear and do. And God will speak to anyone, anywhere that will Shema to his voice. And Yitzhak Kaduri was one of those that shamad to the voice of the Messiah. And he came to know the Messiah, and he revealed to the Jewish people who the Messiah is. But even then, the Jewish people 
because they're so bogged down by their own traditions. And not to attack the Jews because of their traditions. Trust me, all people have false traditions. If you think that the LDS people are exempt from false traditions, you are very, very mistaken. We have plenty of our own false traditions that bind us down and keep us from coming to know the Messiah as Yitzhak Kaduri came to know him. So I'm not attacking the Jewish people. I'm just saying that false traditions of all kinds, these are the things that need to be kicked out. They need to be abolished so we can only have the pure truth of God, the rabbi who found Messiah. Moving on into our next subject, our next sign of the time, the mark slash name of the beast and Islam. What is it that we just read from Yitzhak Kaduri? That foreign religions will seek to rule Jerusalem, will seek to conquer Jerusalem. Very significant in its connection to Islam. And we will see that now. Revelation chapter 13, 13 through 18. These are the verses that discuss the mark or the name of the beast, which there are so many conspiracy theories about. Everyone everywhere has an opinion about what the mark of the beast is. And we're going to go through three examples of what people have said. Well, that's the mark of the beast. No, 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 no. That's the mark of the beast. No, yeah, that's not. This is the mark of the beast. So many theories out there, so much speculation. But again, remember, the book of Revelation was written for a very specific audience. It was written for the doulos of Jesus Christ, no one else. So we have all these people with all this speculation saying, well, that's what it means, and that's what it means, and, and they're wrong. Or at least based on this research that I've done, and I believe that you'll come to see this, I believe that all of these speculations about the number 666 and all this other stuff about the mark of the beast is wrong. But let's read from Revelation 13, 13 through 18. And he, the false prophet, I mean the false prophet of the beast, otherwise called the Antichrist, the Anti-Messiah, he, the false prophet, doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, erect an idol, an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark, 
or this is important or the name of the beast or the number of his name here is wisdom let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is six hundred three score and six 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 so what can we learn from these few verses that we've just read from Revelation 13? There's a lot of information contained in there, so let's pull it all out in bullet points and let's break it down. The false prophet, he performs miracles, including calling down fire out of heaven, which he will most likely do with technology that we just will not be familiar with. He performs these miracles, and by these miracles, he deceives the whole world including the elect of God. That's what the scriptures teach, and we'll come to those scriptures at the end of this teaching, part one, that even the elect of God, who are the elect according to the covenant, are going to be deceived. Not all of them, but some of them. So we've got to make sure we know the word of God, we know the scriptures, we know what to look for. He deceives the whole world. He has an image of the beast made. He gives life to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast will speak. Everyone that does not worship the beast is killed. If you are not worshiping the beast and you're caught, you're killed. You are put to death. No different than what has happened in many, many pagan cultures and nations throughout this world's history including the account of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego under King Nebuchadnezzar, right? You're not going to worship this God, this image that I've erected. You're dead. I've created a furnace for you to toss you in. What happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Because of their righteousness, their purity, and they were sanctified, they were protected by God, and the flames could not harm them. But Everyone that does not worship the image of the beast is killed. We want you dead if you're not going to worship this image. He gives them a mark in their foreheads or in their right hands, and without this mark, you cannot buy or sell. You want to go buy some groceries? You want a loaf of bread, peanut butter, and jelly? Well, if you don't got the mark... Forget it. You don't have the mark? Well, let me make a quick phone call and get the authorities over here. And uh, are you one of these people that's not worshiping the image of the beast? You're dead. This one's extremely important. The mark is the name of the beast. And the beast's number is 666. Or at least that's how it's been translated into the English. But as it is so important, and I continue to stress and emphasize throughout this teaching, you have to go back to the original language and the original culture and the context. If you can do that, then you'll come to a deeper understanding. And that is exactly what John says. Let him that hath understanding... Let him that hath understanding. And so few people have that understanding. So they go 
on all these wild speculations about what 666 is and, and the mark of the beast and the name of the... Well, what is it? Let him that hath understanding teach you what these things are. What are some of those wild speculations that are out there? And don't get me wrong, there was a time in my life that I believed this stuff, but I'm just like, you know what? I don't believe that stuff anymore. No, 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 because it's, it's, it's garbage. It's just, it's just garbage. The first one that's common to most people, I think most people have heard this, is the barcodes. Right there at the front of the barcode, the direct middle and the end, those two double lines that go down longer than the rest of the lines, that is actually the number six. Go check this out for yourself. Find a barcode, any barcode. Go into your pantry, grab a can of beans, look at the barcode. You will see a beginning, middle, and end line right there, the number 666. Oh, well, that must be it because this is, this is about buying and selling. And you need the marked in order to buy and sell, so this is what it is. In the future, you're going to have barcodes. You're going to have a barcode on your forehead or on the back of your right hand, and that's the mark of the beast. No, I don't think so. Now, certainly, the mark of the beast can manifest itself both physically and spiritually. And we're going to talk more about that spiritual manifestation in part three of this teaching, part 3b. But as far as the literal physical fulfillment of this prophecy of the mark of the beast, I don't think that the barcodes is what it's talking about. Let's go on. This is an RFID chip, radio frequency identification. Incredibly small. Here's an image of the actual size of these RFID chips. And they're used for identification. They're used to locate you wherever you are. And they can also be used to buy and sell so that you can go over to a scanner and you can scan your hand. And whatever it is that you're, you're trying to get into a building or you're trying to buy something, the RFID chip, which has your information on it, your bank accounts, all of your, your uh, medical history, everything that is your identification is contained on this little tiny itty-bitty chip that's placed where? It's placed in the back of your hand, right there. It can be placed in the back of your left hand, or it can be placed in the back of your right hand, right there beneath the skin in the back of your right hand. So people, and again, I think this is fascinating, and I think that, you know, is this possibly what the Mark of the Beast is talking about? I think that it can manifest itself in a spiritual way. Is materialism a form of a the Mark of the Beast? Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, we'll talk about that more in 3B. But the physical, literal fulfillment of this prophecy of the Mark of the Beast, is this what it's talking about? That you're going to have this chip in the back of your right hand, you want to buy something, you walk over to the scanner and you wave your hand over the scanner and boop, okay, now you can buy it. No, I don't think so. I do not think that this is the mark or the name of the beast. Remember, that is very important, that the mark is the name. They're one and the same. This doesn't have a name other than RFID, radio frequency identification. So by what the scriptures teach, this can't be the mark of the beast. 
Or how about this one? Oh, this is one of my favorites. I mean, the people that do this, I, I have to really wonder about their sanity. I mean, who is staying up till three in the morning trying to figure this? I don't know. But, and I haven't seen this for myself, and that's why I'm so skeptical about this. But I have been told that on the Pope's cap, his crown that he wears, or at least anciently, whether it's, uh, you know, this was in the past or whether it's still something they have today, there are the words, the Latin phrase, vicarious filii die, which means the vicar or the representative of God, because that's what the Catholics believe the Pope is. He's the vicar, the representative of God, vicarious filii die. If you count up the Roman numerals in those three words, you come to 112, 53, 501, which when you add them all up, you get 666. That's what you get. Is this the mark of the beast? Or is the Pope, as I've heard this many times, is the Pope the Antichrist? No, I don't believe that the Pope is the Antichrist. Will he and the Catholic Church play a part in the last days? I believe so. I believe so. I believe that it's even possible that in the last days, the Pope, when the Antichrist is revealed, that the Pope will say that this man is the Messiah, thus teaching over a billion people, billion Catholics all over the world, that this man you should accept as the Messiah. But is the Pope himself the Antichrist? 666. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Cannot stress this enough. The mark of the beast is the name of the beast. And what is it that John says? Let him that hath understanding reveal this to you. Because here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding know the name or the mark of the beast. So, I'm going to present some information to you, some research, that I believe is what John saw in vision. What he saw in vision and what he recorded as best he knew how in the Greek language. But he saw things easily translated into Greek. And here it is. This is from the Codex Vaticanus. It's dated at A.D. 350. This isn't the exact writings of John, but this is a copy of John's writing. And that is the symbol or the symbols that John wrote for the number 666. And again, this is the oldest translation we have. This is the oldest version. And that's the closest representation that we have to what John actually wrote. And as the translate, the copy after copy after copy after copy was made over hundreds of years of John's writings, that those words right there, what he wrote, 666, they just began to be more and more looking like the Greek. Now, this is what the Greek actually looks like for the number 666. The letter Chi, which is 600, 
the number z, which is 60, and the number sigma, 6. Chi, z, sigma, 660 and 6, 666. That's what it looks like in the Greek. You compare that to what John actually wrote, and you see that, yeah, there's similarities, but they're not identical. In fact, they're pretty different. First of all, over the Z, there's a line. What's that line all about? And on the Chi, there's a either end, but in John's writings, they're only at the base. And the sigma doesn't, I mean, kind of looks like, but not really. People, they read this and they go, well, he must have been writing the Greek number 666. But what if, just possibility for you, what if John was writing something that wasn't even Greek? What if he was writing something that was in a different language that nobody, that nobody had understanding of? Let him that hath understanding read this and know what it says. But what if for the past 15, 16, 1700 years, no one's been able to really read it? And they read that and they guess that's what he wrote, 666, in the Greek. This is how you would write the name of Allah in Arabic. It's kind of a snake-like W shape, and we'll get to that later. It has a line off to the side of it with a hook, and that is Allah. And Allah can be written in virtually any direction. You can write it this way, you can turn it on upside down, you can flip it, you can mirror it, you can write it virtually any direction you want, and it's still the name of Allah. This right here is the Bismillah, which literally translates as conquest or jihad in the name of Allah. That's the Bismillah. That's what it means. Conquest in the name of Allah. And again, Allah, it can be flipped. You can write Allah in virtually any direction you want, and it's still his name. Two cross swords, then the name of Allah, and then another sword. Scimitar shape. Compare that to what John wrote, and see the similarities. In the first symbol, the cross swords. Notice in John's writing, the hooks are at the base of those two swords, just as they would be in the Arabic. Notice the second symbol, the name of Allah, with a line with a hook on it. And notice the third symbol, a curved blade-like shape. This here is the Shahada, and the Shahada literally translates as, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. Or, a more complete translation of the Shahada is, I bear witness, or I testify, that there is no God but Allah, and I bear witness that Muhammad is his messenger. And contained right there in the Shahada is the Bismillah. Now, 
again, you can write these symbols in almost any direction you want. For instance, the cross swords, it's now vertical. But that is the Bishmila in the Shahada. So there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. In the Shahada is the Bishmila, which literally translates as conquest or jihad in the name of Allah. Turn to the sacred writings of the Islamic faith. This is in the Turmuthi 2639, which talks about the significance of the Shahada and what the Shahada is used for. It reads, Allah will save a man from my nation above all creation on Judgment Day. In front of him will be laid 99 registers for his sins. Every register is as long as the eye can see. Then he is asked, do you deny any of these? Then he says, no, O Lord. Then he is asked, do you have any excuse? He responds, no, Lord. Then he is told, you have but one good deed, and there will be no condemnation for you today. A badge is brought forth. Very important. A badge is brought forth. Scrolled across this badge are the words, no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. That is the Shahada that's written on this badge. Then he is asked to bring forth his deeds. He asks, O oh Lord, what is this badge that is with these registers? He is told, You will receive no condemnation. The deeds are put on one hand, and the badge, the Shahada, in the other. Then the registers, those 99 registers that were as long as the eye could see, will float, and the badge, the shahada, will outweigh the registers. This is what Islam teaches, that you wear this badge, you have this badge, this shahada, which reads, no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger, and all your sins, all your sins, no matter what you've done, even if there's 99 registers and they're all as long as the eye can see. But if you testify, because that's what the Shahada means, I testify that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. If you have done that, then all of your deeds, the registers will float and the Shahada will outweigh. The registers and you will be permitted into heaven or paradise or whatever it is that right there on the flag of the nation of Saudi Arabia is the Shahada that's the Shahada beneath it is a sword that sword is a symbol of jihad conquest in the name of Allah this is what Islam teaches that you have to go out and you have to conquer and conquest. Now, if you have not watched my previous documentary, Only a Matter of Time, I really recommend that you go watch it first. Because we spend two solid hours in the wars and rumors of wars section talking all about Islam to get you a, a foundational understanding of their doctrines and what they teach. 
and the fruit, the, the rotten fruit of those teachings and those doctrines. But for right now, you need to know that is the Shahada. In the middle there is the Bishmila. That right there on the foreheads of these two individuals is the Shahada. That is the badge that they wear. They put the badge, the Shahada, which contains the name of Allah, the Bishmillah, right there on their foreheads, and they wrap it all around their heads. The adults do this. The children do this. These children are, are born wicked or anything like Absolutely not. False traditions. I cannot emphasize how important it is for us to discover among ourselves what our own false traditions are and to root up those false traditions and throw them out. It was the false traditions of the Lamanites that taught their children to have a perpetual hatred, an eternal hatred for the children of Nephi. False traditions will destroy you as an individual. They'll destroy you as a family, as a nation. They will absolutely destroy you. And these poor, innocent children are born into these families that their parents, under these false traditions, they place the Shahada right there on their foreheads, pretty much from the cradle to the grave. They wear these things. Here's another image of some children wearing the Shahada. And you can also wear the Shahada on your right arm. You can wear it as a badge right here. I've even seen images of people wearing the Shahada right here up at the top of their arm. But those are the two locations where you are allowed, you are permitted to wear the Shahada. Right here and right here. And that's it. And the Shahada contains the name of Allah. Back to Revelation 13. And the false prophet causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark. That word mark in the Greek is charagma, which is an etching, a stamp, or a badge of servitude. Now, isn't that interesting? The very word that John chose to write, mark, can mean a literal badge of servitude. What's the shahada? Badge that you wear that testifies that you know that Allah is the true God and Muhammad is his true prophet. When in reality, Muhammad was a murderer, he was a very wicked man, a fornicator, and he is one of those among many false prophets that Jesus Christ warned us about, saying, beware of false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. They are wolves in sheep's clothing, and they will devour you. They'll devour you as an individual all the way up to as a nation 
or nations. Charagma, a badge of servitude. And he causes them to wear this charagma, this badge of servitude, in their right hand or in their foreheads or on their foreheads. Because that word in in the Greek can be translated in many different ways. It can be translated in, on, and others. In or on their right hand or on their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the charagma, the badge of servitude, or the name of the beast. What does the shahada contain? The bishmila, which has the name of Allah. Now, charagma can also mean an actual stamp or an etching. And it has been theorized by some that the shahada will appear in the future, or the bishmila will appear in the future, similar to this, that it will be an etching in the forehead or an engraving in the forehead or in the back of the right hand. That's possible. That's certainly possible. No question about it. But I really find it incredibly powerful, very, very powerful, that the mark, the charagma, can be a badge of servitude, which they're already wearing. It's not something that you have to look forward to and say, well, this will happen in the future. It's like, no, it has happened. It is already they're wearing this shahada, which their own holy books teach is a badge. That's what they call this thing. It's a badge that will, if you wear it, it will outweigh all of your sins. And you will get into heaven and paradise if you just wear the shahada, if you testify that Allah is the true God and Muhammad is his messenger. I'm going to take you all the way back now to the Garden of Eden. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of this world history. Moses chapter 4, verses 3 through 11. Wherefore, because that Satan, which in Hebrew, Satan, or as it's pronounced in Hebrew, Satan, it means adversary, one that's opposed to something else. Satan, Satan, he is opposed to God, and for that reason, he's cast out, he's cast down, because he rebelled against God. He's the adversary. Because that Satan, that adversary, rebelled against me and sought to destroy the agency of man, which I, the Lord God, I, Yahovah Elohim, had given him, and also that I should give unto him mine own power, by the power of mine only begotten, I caused that he should be cast down. And he became Satan. Lucifer became Satan, yea, even the devil, the father of all lies, to deceive and to blind men and to lead them captive at his will, even as many as would not hearken unto my voice. Now, we don't have the original language of the book of Moses, but in the Bible, the Old Testament, that word hearken 
would be Shema. It's not just that you just hear something. You don't just hear it. You Shema. You listen and obey. So even as many as would not listen and obey my voice, God's voice, Satan has power over to deceive them and to blind them, to lead them captive at his will. And now that serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which I, the Lord God, had made. And Satan put it into the heart of the serpent, for he had drawn away many after him. Isn't that interesting? Satan can actually draw away not just people, but he can draw away creatures as well. Beasts of the field, animals, if they will not hearken to God's voice. For he had drawn away many of these serpents after him, and he sought also to beguile Eve, to trick Eve, for he knew not the mind of God. Wherefore he sought to destroy the world. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said? This is what some have called the Genesis 3 attack. This is in the book of Genesis, is where it was originally recorded, that did God really say? That's what Satan does. That's what he does all the time. It's what he's done since the beginning of this world, and he still does it to this day. The Genesis 3 attack. Did God really say? Did he really say that? That is the foundational lie that leads to all sin. Now, that was the lie that he used to beguile, to trick Eve. Yea, hath God said, did he really say, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And he spake by the mouth of the serpent. It was the serpent that spoke. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which thou beholdest in the midst of the garden, which is the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. That's what God said, and I believe it. But then the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Ah, so now he's calling God a liar. First he introduces the concept of, well, did God really say, did he really tell you that? Ah, ye shall not surely die. No, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. These are the lies of Satan, that you can trespass the law of God to reach exaltation. The lies of Satan. Did God really say? You don't need to worry about what God said. Because all this stuff in Scripture, it's old, it's outdated. Throw it out. And he spoke by the mouth of the serpent. And I, the Lord God, said unto the woman, What is this thing that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me. And I did eat. It was the serpent, the snake, that lying, thieving snake in the grass, as he's called, that old serpent 
that beguiled 